Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. This episode contains mention of suicide, which some listeners may find disturbing. If you or someone you know needs someone to talk to, please call Lifeline on 13 11 14. You must have wrestled with how you remember your father. Well, I, th- I think I knew there was a deep pain, but I never understood what it was. And most parents don't share the personal. One of the greatest things that I've wrestled with is that my father has been gone 25 years and I can't talk to him about anything that I've found. You're listening to Short Black with me, Sandra Sully. Good women, great chat. I'm thrilled today to welcome to Short Black. I would regard a good friend of mine and uh, a mentor in many regards, but someone I've equally looked up to for a long time because when I started in this business, everyone spoke about Anita Jacoby and I went, who is this woman? So then I researched her and thought, oh, she's done everything. Really? She's done everything. (laughs) Welcome to Short Black, Anita Jacoby AM. Sandra, thank you for inviting me and I'm glad to be sitting here opposite you having a chat about whatever we're going to chat about. (laughs) (laughs) You know what we're going to chat about. I do. You've just released your book, Secrets Beyond the Screen, and I think um, we need to get to the nub of it. You started out as a journo and, you know, Simon Townsend's Wonderworld, Good Morning Australia Today show, 60 Minutes, Andrew Denton, you name it, you've done it. And you've told a million great stories, essentially as a producer, but that's the singular most important cog in the wheel in journalism, even if you don't get the on-air credits. People always attach it to Andrew Denton or John Laws or Liz Hayes. And of course, they're marvellous in their own right. But without a great producer, you're nothing. Sandra, thank you for saying that because a lot of on-air talent, not all, don't recognise the role of a producer and how important it is in supporting and helping and making them look good, as good as we can make people look. So I appreciate you acknowledging that. For all producers around Australia. Absolutely. And and my producer sitting here, Ali, who I admire immensely. You know what? I think a lot of people, I guess, you know, hadn't planned to go down this path as far as we are, but, you know, you need someone to bounce the story process off. You do. You need someone to wrestle it with, don't you? You do. And also you sometimes need somebody who can actually deliver the hard news to somebody who's in front of a camera because often they're so consumed in what they're doing. So you need somebody behind them that's watching their back but also equally telling them things that aren't working, which is a hard conversation on occasions to have, as you can imagine. But that's part of the role of a producer. Any hard conversations spring to mind? Oh, of course. <laughs> am I going to confess what they are? You don't have to name names, but you've worked with some big personalities in the business. I mean, the biggest. Yeah, I, look, I have. And on occasions I've had to work out how to deliver bad news or not bad news, deliver news that perhaps somebody doesn't want to hear. 
And I've just learned that, you know, with tact and with empathy and kind of really going away and picking your battles, you know, choosing something that you really, and when I say battles, I don't mean that literally. I mean that you choose the right battles to actually go in and point somebody in a direction that you feel would be better for them and better for the program. Look, it's often hard to receive criticism, but if it's objective and constructive. Correct. And that's, I presume, where you come from when when you have to deliver that? And also you've got to have developed a rapport and a respect. You know, if you're working with somebody on camera, there has to be that rapport Mm -hmm. and then there has to be a degree of respect. Otherwise, why are you in that role? Particularly if you're an executive producer, you must have the respect of that person. I mean, when I worked with John Laws, it was really interesting. When I first met him, I was incredibly intimidated because he was the biggest broadcaster in Australia and he treated the women in his radio station as handmaidens. That's what he called them. But more jokingly or real? Well, I think a mixture of the two. I think he'd grown up with that sort of culture where women would come to the office in the radio studio and wear dresses. So that was his expectation. And I remember sitting down with him when I first met him and I said, I don't wear dresses. I'm not a handmaiden. I don't drink wild turkey like you do. And we just set those ground rules very early. And we had this great working relationship because I'd already set some ground rules and he equally to me had. And I thought that was really, he needed to know that. And it wasn't like, I wasn't like I was saying no. It just, I needed him to know that's the kind of person that I am. I'm fairly black and white and that's the way I like to work with people. For those that don't know, I mean, they are famous stories about anyone that worked with John Laws had to wear a dress. That's right. Were you the first to buck that trend? Well, I would think I'd probably be one of the only, yes. But remembering I wasn't working with him in radio. I was working with him in television. So radio was really his, and he's still today, he's still on 2SM. That was his domain. Whereas I was actually producing and creating a show for Foxtel in television. And John's always, and I I really, I absolutely adore him. He's always had this thing about the way he looks and he's quite upfront about that. So once we got over that hurdle and he empowered me to be his executive producer, we had the best working relationship. And he didn't care if I came in in pants because I'd actually sort of said that to him in the beginning. It wasn't a big deal. Did you have any hesitation in having that discussion with him? No. Given the headlines that have been written about this exact issue? No, I didn't have any hesitation because when I first met him, I think I said earlier, I was quite intimidated the first time I met him, which is really rare because I've shot interviews with people all over the world from Clinton to David Attenborough to Jane Fonda to you name them. And I just, when I met John, because he was the biggest broadcaster in Australia, there was just a moment where I got really nervous. And we had this very intimate lunch at Machiavelli's, which is a power restaurant here in Sydney, in Clarence Street. And I remember I was sitting there waiting for him to come in the first time I'd met him. And when he walked in, I don't know if you remember, Machiavelli's used to have all these pictures up there, black and white pictures of all the power players. Oh, yes. I remember my first lunch there and I I thought, oh, oh. You know, I looked at all the portraits of the the photographs. And in fact, John's photo was right above the table that I was sitting at. He had prime position in power. And he walked in and I saw him. He walked across the the, uh, restaurant through Machiavelli's. And it was like these waters were parting as he walked in. Because that was at the time where he'd had big interviews with Keating and he had an enormous amount of gravitas. And for a moment, I was nervous. And you know what? He sat down and I thought, you're just like me. You're a person who's a bit nervous about being in this situation one-on-one with a woman that he didn't know. And what we did, I started talking about the country and my love of country and rural, you know, country music, and, and we got on like a house on fire. And from that moment on, we had this great trust relationship and worked really well together. 
You have worked with some of Australia's biggest stars. Mm. Who's been your favourite? Who's been my favourite? Well, I think one of my favourites is Liz Hayes. Liz Hayes is, you know, people probably don't see it so much on 60 Minutes and Under Investigation, which she does for nine. But I worked with her on the Today Show. She used to co-host it with George Negus. And she's incredible fun. She's funny. She's warm. She grew up in a really loving family. What you see is what you get. You don't have to second guess her at all. I always was a fan. You know, my mother was a fan when Sue Kellaway was on the Today Show. Right. Uh, with Steve with, Liebman. Exactly. She just had an earthiness about her and that's what you're telling me is really true. Everything about her is decent. She's just a really good woman. So I loved working with her. She would be one of the people that I most enjoyed working with. But equally, when I was at 60 Minutes, I loved working with Jeff McMullen. Jeff McMullen is a great storyteller and he helped me hone my skills telling long form stories. So I was really fortunate to work with him on many, many stories. He'd come from the ABC. He had a very, in fact, Jeff is an extremely good producer, not just a great reporter, but a really good storyteller and producer. So I learned a lot from him. What do you think makes a good producer as opposed to a reporter? Because those that don't understand our business probably don't get the difference. Well, I mean, some of this is a crossover, but a good producer understands story, understands all the elements within a story that you need to pull so that an audience will really understand what you're setting out to do. A good producer comes up with story ideas. I think that's one of the lifebloods of our industry. And if you can't come up with ideas, then perhaps you shouldn't be a producer. Because reporters are often so busy just going, and certainly at 60 Minutes, what we would do is reporters would leapfrog from producers and crews to producers and crews because they were so busy on the road. So producers have to have ideas, they have to have enthusiasm, they have to be empathetic, they've got to be courageous and ask a lot of questions. And I think they pull, they pull the whole story together. They make that story possible. And then, you know, because it's television, you've also got to marry some pictures with those angles and that's the tricky bit. That's exactly right. So you've got to have a really strong visual eye. I mean, you know better than me, well, as well as I do, that when you're watching a story on television, the pictures outweigh the sound, unless sound is really bad. But when pictures are great and you've thought about it visually, your sound will follow, assuming that you've got a good recordist. So it's the marrying of the, the pictures, the sound, how you structure the story, how you tell it, how you tell it in an edit how you cast it with the characters that you do so that you've got all these different points of view. And so it's not cookie-cutter storytelling. And I used to love doing that, particularly at 60 Minutes, because in those days you had the cachet to go anywhere in the world. Or cachet and cash. <laughs> those were the halcyon days of TV when you actually got a credit card with no limit. I mean, I didn't start in television in those days. I did as a, a flog junior in the newsroom. And I used to hear about, you know, the corporate credit card and the largesse that went with your world. And you actually lived it. Well, we would be given an American Express card. And usually when we went on the road, we were given 5,000 US dollars. We weren't given it. What we were doing, we, was we were taking it as a kitty, And you had to account for every dollar. It wasn't like the 5,000 US went straight to you. But it gave you great latitude to travel, to do stories really well, to find stories anywhere in the world. Because 60 Minutes was based on the Life magazine, the American magazine, which was bringing the world into your home. And unfortunately, with the internet, it's changed the whole nature of storytelling. I mean, you can recce everything on the internet before you get there, whereas 60 Minutes used to bring the world into people's living rooms. Mm. It's the world's changed so much and you have witnessed that and worked through, I would argue, a revolution in our business. Yes, yes. Are you hopeful about its future? 
Look, I think so because everything that we do is based on ideas. And I keep saying when people say to me, oh, look, at the industry's so tight. And I said, if you've got ideas, you will always have a job, always, because computers can't come up with ideas. Only people can. And people can think through how to tell those ideas. And the consumption of ideas, not just in broadcasting and not just in media, ideas permeate how we sell products, how we do all of our communication, how we talk to people. So I am hopeful for the future. I think it's tougher for journalists now. I just do because we've lost 5,000 from the industry. And those people have not been able to, because of the economics of, of um, the media these days, many of them have not been able to find other jobs. And we've lost a lot of really good journalists. So that disappoints me about the industry, but I understand the financial constraints of the industry as well. We're starting to see more philanthropy in journalism and equally we've got government instrumentalities that are demanding that the major players, the major social media players, actually support and not just profit. Well, I sit on the Australian Communications and Media Authority and we actually oversee the news uh, media bargaining code, which of course means that Google and Facebook have to pay, they have to pay for the content that they use which I think is, you know, absolutely fair. And the fact that Australia was the first country in the world to introduce this legislation is really important because it's actually sending out a message, not just here in Australia but worldwide, that content created by other creators, whether it's, you know, the ABC or 7 or 9 or 10 or whoever it is, that there's a, a dollar value placed on that and you can't just take that content and use it. And it also what it means is it's putting money back into the industry to create other content. And that's really important when, you know, our companies are economically challenged. The fact that these big fangs, the members, you know, the, you know Facebook and Amazon and, you know, Google, that they put money back into the economy, which is great to create content. So that's a win. For us, that's a win. So would you encourage young journalists to continue to pursue a career in media, given how splintered it is at the moment? Yes, because I think if you've got a passion for storytelling, and if you've got a passion for social justice or telling stories, why wouldn't you go into journalism? I, I keep thinking I'm so keen to see more strong investigative journalists out there because I want to know about the stories that we don't hear about. Are mobile phones okay for us to use? We kind of hear bits and pieces around the world that they are. But unless somebody does a deep dive and pulls all that information together, we're never going to know are they really dangerous for us. So I would encourage people, if they want to tell stories, Journalism is the best profession to do that. And you know, Sandra, because I do this scholarship through the Walkley Foundation, of which you know, I mean, I, I encourage all young journalists or all young people who want to get into the industry because they might move into another area later if it's too difficult, but at least they should give it a go. You look at someone like Judith Nielsen, who's invested into media and to journalism specifically, and that's so important and powerful because it does support young journalists trying to get into the field. She's doing great work. I mean, she, the fact that, and also we know out of America, philanthropy is really important these days. And I would encourage anybody who has had a, a great career in our industry to put some money back in wherever else, because that's really, if an industry has been good to you, like it has to me, then I feel like I should put something back into this industry. And that's via, you know, helping train young journalists in broadcasting. Over the years, as we said before, you've met just about every superstar. Not every super, not every superstar. Well, you've met a, a heck of a lot of them and uh, work with some of the, the biggest journalists in the Australian media. Do you still get starstruck? Did you ever? Yes. I think probably the person that's most starstruck me is Sir David Attenborough. 
because he's genuinely, he is the, the genuine article. And I just, for so long, he's been talking about climate change. And any of us in Australia can see what's happening to our climate. And the fact that he keeps coming in and saying to Australia, you really need to take this issue seriously. You cannot ignore it. And I just put him on a pedestal. So, yes, I was probably a bit starstruck when I met him. I just admire him. He's a really decent human being. And you know, I mean, he just, here he is at 94. And he's still on the world stage. So, yes, I think there was a moment where I felt a little bit, oh, gosh. <laughs> and, in fact, when his interview went to air, I sent him a, 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 sent him a DVD. We were back in the DVD stages to his home in London. And I get this beautiful handwritten note back to thank me for sending that uh, DVD. That's the kind of man we're talking about, the calibre of the man. You've had an extraordinary career. I've been fortunate. I just want to say I've been really lucky. Luck. I think, comes with good timing. Possibly. And what you do with it. Mm. I believe that, yes, you've been fortunate, but equally there's a determination to succeed or at least follow your passion. Yes. And you've done that and that's opened doors and you've worked in the halcyon days of the industry but also the most misogynist. Mm. You were turned down for a number of jobs. You went for a number of jobs and never got them because you weren't male. That's right. What did you learn from those times and how did you get through that? So actually here at 10, uh, this was a completely different era that I'm talking about. This is in the uh, mid-1980s. I worked at 10 on Good Morning Australia and it was hosted by, co-hosted by Kerri-Anne Kennelly and Gordon Elliott. It was just before I started. Just before you started. Yeah. Then you would understand the culture that I'm about to say. So it's not about today. I'm talking about a, a long time ago, but I just want to be very clear about that. I was, oh, a number of times I put my hand up to be the second in charge of Good Morning Australia, which was very similar to the Today Show is today. It was the breakfast show. And because the program was run by a man, I was overlooked. And eventually I left Good Morning Australia and I went to the Nine Network and I came in at the Today Show as the second in charge, the supervising producer. And not once, not twice, but three times I was overlooked for the executive producer role. Now, Liz Hayes went in and saw the head of News and Current Affairs, a man called Ian Frickberg, who's no longer with us, unfortunately. But I couldn't get a look in because in those days, particularly at nine, they didn't have any female executive producers. They had females in publicity and PR and they had females in programming, but they had no females across any of their programs running the programs. Now, I can only assume it was because I was young and female. Well, we all know that was true. Yes, that's right. <laughs> it was fact. And yet you never stopped trying. And when I read your memoir, Secrets Beyond the Screen, you really credit your father with instilling in you that belief that everything was possible if you maintained integrity, persevered and followed your dreams. That's right. And the example I've just given you about the Today Show. So after the third time, I was overlooked for that role. And I was basically doing it because I was the second in charge. I went and talked to my father. He was a, a much older father. And he, I know he never saw gender. And he encouraged me so much about being courageous, having integrity, and having the discipline and, you know, the wherewithal that if you didn't like a situation, and you were confident enough that you should just deal with that situation. So he encouraged me to go and resign from nine when that happened at the Today Show, and indeed I did. And I think the head of news and current affairs was so surprised that I did that. 
that not a day or two later, um, I was called back up to his office at nine and I was given a contract and a, an opportunity at 60 Minutes, which was then the biggest show on television. And so I'm not encouraging everybody to do that. No, but you had conviction. Yeah. If you feel strongly enough about something, then you should act on that conviction. Mm. You should not just accept that that's the status quo. And I've always believed that gender was irrelevant, that if you were really good at your job, that's how you would be recognised. That's how you would get your next job. But that wasn't the case. And, and to some degree, that's still not the case in our industry. It's changing, but we're not quite there yet. No, we aren't. And I, I would use one example in the commercial sphere. And Beverly McGarvey here at Channel 10, good on her. She would be our most senior woman in television in Australia. Yes. But if you actually look at the commercial networks, the one and only woman that ran a commercial network was Maureen Plasvik at seven. She was appointed in 2000. Well, 22 years later, we still don't have another female CEO of a commercial network. Different at the ABC, not talking about there. Yes. And I just, I always think to myself, why? I know. And we could run down that rabbit hole and never come exactly. out. Exactly. We could. <laughs> I do believe the world's changing. We see evidence of it all the time, yes. but sometimes it's four steps forward, two back, five forward, one back. Yes. Yeah, it is changing, but but we women still across various sectors still are underrepresented in those key management roles. And I think that's probably why, correct me if I'm wrong, why you're so passionate about the mentoring work that you do. Is that really because, you know, women still aren't there? Yeah, because um, in my career, I started at the Women's Weekly when Ita was the editor, and that was one of the few times I worked with women in any senior position. Throughout my entire career, I've worked predominantly with men, which is great, and I've worked with some great men. But I want to see women that I can aspire to. I don't want to just see blokes, because I think mentoring is about envisaging what you could become and seeing women who have done that, and that inspires you into what you can do. So that's why it's important to me. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. You've told stories all your professional life and um, it was a random dinner party that set you on a path to discover arguably the most compelling story you've ever been able to tell is one that you were hiding within your own family. Well, not hiding, but you didn't know about. That's exactly right. It's an exceptional story. It's just, I was blown away. I still am today. So my father was, as I mentioned earlier, he was a much older father. We got on extremely well from a young age. I would sit in his study and I would talk. He would just talk to me about the world. He was born in Prussia, um, which was a part of Germany where they viewed themselves as nobility. 
And he lived the most extraordinary life before he'd turned 22, 23. I mean, he was born just before the First World War broke. So he was a young boy as the First World War was happening, and particularly in Europe. I mean, Australia, we were kind of quarantined from it. But in Europe, in the heart of Europe, in Germany, they saw the worst of the First World War. Mm. Then he saw the worst of the Spanish pandemic when, you know, 20 to something like 50 million people died. Then he saw the rise of Nazism. And then in 1929, in October 1929, when the stock market crashed in America in the Great Depression, his family, my, my grandparents, lost absolutely everything. Their German bonds became worthless. And then in the early 30s, the 1930s, he was arrested by the Nazis because in this process of the rise of Nazism, my grandparents had to sit him down and explain that he had Jewish blood on my grandfather's side, not my grandmother's side. And of course, people know that the Jewish faith is passed down on the female side, not the male side. But under Hitler, it didn't matter. You were Jewish. And I uncovered, you know, on the public records here in Australia that my father had been jailed by the Nazis that he'd fled the brown, the, a group called the Brown Shirts, who were the paramilitary in Germany. I didn't understand any of that. He never told me, which I find quite remarkable, both as a daughter and as a journalist, that he never sat me down and talked about that part of world history that he lived through, that he saw. And I completely empathise with you because I've just participate in So Who Do You Think You Are? And I, like you, have discovered something about my fairly recent past relatives that I understand my mother had no idea. But I was curious about why and how my mother didn't know. And most parents don't share the personal. Do you think it was a product of those times that they didn't look back or is that really being a refugee or, or someone that's gone through some sort of PTSD that literally just looks forward? I think with my grandparents in particular, if you're Depression-era kids, you only can look forward. That's right. And look, yes, I think, and certainly in my both of my parents' case, because my mother was born in Harbin in northern China in Manchuria, and she had to flee persecution as well when the Japanese invaded there, is that people who flee persecution and come to a new country, they only ever look forward. It's really interesting. They look forward, they leave the past behind, they somehow quarantine it, and they look forward and they see opportunity in a new country. And they're all about pursuing that opportunity. And I interviewed Carla Zampatti, who my father mentored at one stage. You know, they were very close. Um, and she, she said, you know, we're all about seeing opportunity in a new country. And I think that's, she did it. And I think my father and other people that come to this country see great opportunity when we don't. And I think he chose Australia because it was as far as he could get away from Germany. And he actually, he never spoke German to us. He spoke perfect English because back in, in Germany, he'd grown up learning English from a young age. You would never know he was German. And so I think he just came here and he just recognised he could create his own life, a new life here, create a business. He got into importing. He arrived with nothing, absolutely nothing, because the Nazis froze his, the money that he was going to get. And then he had to start afresh in a country which was pretty um, ignorant, <laughs> monocultural, white, very different to the Australia of today. I'm talking in the 1930s, the mid-1930s. And they would have known he was German. Yes, of course. And that's part of his problem. He was too Jewish to stay safely in Germany, but he wasn't Jewish enough here in Australia to be protected and, and to not be under suspicion that he could be a Nazi sympathiser, even though he'd been jailed by the Nazis. So he was in a lose-lose situation. He could never 
clear his name with people in Australia in the late, heading into the Second World War. They were always suspicious of him. And he paid a price for that here as well. What happened to him? He was under constant suspicion and they wanted to try and arrest him and intern him because that's what they were doing heading into the Second World War. They were interning a lot of Germans and people that they thought were suspicious and he couldn't escape that suspicion. So he was interned um, and he was interned in a, a camp about eight hours away from Sydney where the famous De Niro boys were. Now he, I mean, I knew at some stage that I thought he had been interned. I knew nothing about the details or anything like that. And the only reason I know most of this information is because when I first found out that my father had this incredible, the, you know, the international man of mystery, this, this story, was I employed an investigative researcher because I didn't have the time to do it myself at this particular time in my career. I was running a big company. You were running ITV. ITV, that's right. So I employed an investigative journalist who'd worked on Four Corners and she found hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of pages in the National Archives and in other sources, much of it in his own words. I'm reading what he said in the 1930s and 1940s in his own words. And that applies to my grandparents, you know, his parents. I never knew them. And yet here I am reading the public record and it's giving voice to whom my grandparents, neither of whom I ever knew. And it's the first time I heard their voices on paper. So you had to go to print. You had to write this book really because it was, must have been the most fascinating nine years or so of your life discovering so much about your past. Sandra, I didn't, I wrestled so much with writing this book because originally I set out to write a family history. It was just for the family. And the more that Sean, and, Sean Hoyt, the investigative journalist, and I dug, the more information I found out that we didn't know. And so f because it's taken me nine years from when this first started at a dinner party where somebody dropped a comment that I least expected to now, for six of those years I wrestled with putting any of my story in there and telling a reader a bit about me, because that's not what journalists do or producers do. We hide behind stories. We never reveal anything personally about ourselves. And I don't, I'm sure you're exactly the same as me. I go to dinner parties and I ask people a million questions about them, but I never reveal anything about myself. So I found that an enormous hurdle and very tough to do. The bulk of the book, though, is really your father's story. Let's talk about that dinner party because that's where essentially a grenade went off. Yes, that's right. So I'm at a dinner party in the eastern suburbs of Sydney at my sister's place or my half-sister's place. It's a table full of journalists and lawyers. And one of the journalists there worked on Australian Story, very popular program, and she was doing a double parter on a famous murder case. And there was just a break in the conversation and one of the barristers there looked me dead in the face and he paused and he said, do you know about the infamous court case involving your father in the 1950s? And as, a, as both a daughter and particularly as a journalist, every bone in my body was it tingling with intrigue because I was like, no, what, what court case? What are you talking about? I had, I had no idea. And as it turned out, the court case involved my father's third wife. And I, as I think I mentioned earlier, I, my father had been married four times and my mother was his fourth wife. And so I had no idea what this court case was about. Did you know that your father had been married prior to your mother? Yes, I did. Yes, I did, because I had a half-sister. Right. You knew about one other woman. Yeah, but I, somewhere in my teens, I knew that there were two wives. And then sometime later, I knew there were three. And at some stage, I'd found out that my mother was the fourth wife. 
but I didn't know anything about the previous wives. I, I knew that my sister, this is very complicated, I'm sorry, <laughs> bear with me. It's a, um, I knew my sister's mother was my father's second wife and I knew that she had died in tragic circumstances when my sister was very young, but that's all I knew. So you've got the bit between your teeth now, right? Clearly, when you've been told about this, you had to explore it. What did you discover? Well, I, I had to. I found out what really intrigued me was, and I don't actually put it in the book, but when this lawyer told me about this court case, he said, and it involves a guy called Laurie Morgan, who actually won double gold at the Rome Olympics. He went on to ride horses for the Queen. He rode steeplechases in England. He was one of Australia's best footballers, one of our best rowers, one of our best badminton players. And he was the pole. I Googled him straight away to find out as much as I could. I ordered in a book about him and read about him. And I thought somehow that I was related to Laurie Morgan because I couldn't work out what the third court case was. And that's how it started. And I became completely obsessed with the court case. And it revealed several lives your father led before you even were born. What I discovered was that after he arrived in Australia, he had been engaged in Germany to a young woman in Bremen who followed him out to Australia. And so she arrived a few months after he arrived. And thankfully, because she had a bit of money, because he had nothing. And they established a business together in the emigre community in Sydney, an import business. And then what happened is my father's life intersected with another couple in that emigre community. And my father fell madly in love with the wife of this other couple. And she fell madly in love with my father. And I, the reason I know about this is because after my father and Grace, his first wife, divorced, there on the public record in the divorce proceedings was a letter tendered to the divorce court that my father had written to his first wife saying that he had met this woman and fallen madly in love with her and that he was going to leave her, but he didn't want to leave her destitute and that he would look after her for the rest of her life and he was just incredibly sorry. And I read this letter that we found in his original uh, European handwriting and it was so beautifully written for a 27-year-old who was born in Germany. The English was perfect. And then there's this absolutely extraordinary love story that so tragically ends so suddenly, um, not long after they get together. And I wrestled with hearing this story and learning about this story for a long time. And we have to say that we're talking about suicide, aren't we? Yes, we are. We are. So she left her husband and her baby daughter and my father left his wife and they came together and then they each went back to their respective partners and then a few months later, the love was so great that they each left their husband and wife again and came together. And they were together for three weeks. And for whatever reason, and I can't explain why, he came home one night and she had um, killed herself. And you can imagine a 27-year-old who's starting out a new life in a new country after all that he'd experienced, walking in to find this devastating scene with no family around him completely alone in a country where he was under suspicion all the time. He was just devastated. And I now know from the public record he had a, a, a devastating breakdown um, that he, I don't know if he recovered because he was almost immediately interned during the war. So all of this happened in quick, she died in March 1939. And then by September 1939, when Menzies indicated that Australia was going to join the war effort in Europe, 
my father was suffering this incredible breakdown and then was sent to an internment camp. And there was no mental health facilities in those days. Nobody talked about, you know, are you depressed? What can we do to help you? And they were horrendous conditions too, weren't they? Exactly. Stinking hot. He just, you know, the food was appalling. They didn't have toilet facilities, proper toilet facilities. They didn't have proper showers. It was dusty. It was the height of summer. It must have been just appalling. Well, luckily he managed to actually appeal and get out, which I find remarkable that he launched his own case and appealed, but managed to get out. He had set up a business before he was interned and he had a young assistant called Phyllis. And Phyllis ran the business while he was interned. And so after he was released from internment, they, you know, kept working together and then somewhere along the line they fell in love and then they married. But that didn't work out so well. No, it didn't. Sadly, it didn't. I can't explain how or why this happened. And this is the mother of my sister. So I'm very cognizant that my sister is alive and how deeply hurtful it is for her. Her mother also killed herself. My father has been dealt the most awful hand and I had no understanding about any of that. And that's deeply confronting to read about a parent that they're faced with that. And I think it's easy to judge him that two women have done that, but you need to understand. And I try and cut him a lot of a lot of slack, A, because of his background and what he'd experienced up until then. And secondly, he could never have predicted what the great love of his life would do and that would be replicated by his, his second wife. And I'm not trying to excuse any failings or complexities. I'm just trying to say that it's easy to judge and not be aware of all the circumstances. You must have wrestled with how you remember your father. Well, I, th- I think I knew there was a deep pain, but I never understood what it was because in, in my teenage years, I realised he had a breakdown, another breakdown. I don't know if there were others in the intervening years. But look, I'm his daughter. You know, I, you know yes, I, see the, I now see the flaws and the complexities. I had an idealised version of him. Like most, not most, well, most daughters do. They put their fathers on a pedestal. You don't see those flaws and complexities when you're young. But that doesn't mean I don't love him as much as I did. It just means that I view him in that 360 degree way. And that's probably in some ways more rewarding because you see a person with all their flaws. Now, your father was highly entrepreneurial, uh, you know, from the day that he arrived and uh, he continued to be. You're right. He was very entrepreneurial. After the war, he jumped on a plane. Oh, actually, sorry, he was sent to spy in Germany. Did you forget that? Yeah, bit? I forgot that bit <laughs> to to uh, and probably it was actually through Sir Robert Menzies because the Australian government wanted somebody who was young, who was German, who spoke perfect English, but could get away with being German and who understood technology. And my father understood technology, and so he was sent to Germany to spy straight at the end of the war for the Allies to find communication technology and to bring it back to Australia for the Postmaster General to open up communication pathways around Australia. And he was also, uh, I think, shrewd enough to get, jump on a plane and go to Japan when most people in Australia viewed the Japanese, you know. They were frightened. Terribly frightened. But because my father had been European and he'd seen the worst in Germany, he didn't view the Japanese in that way. He viewed opportunity because everything was made in Japan in those days. Now it's made in China. So he brought a lot of technology back here. But I should stress, this is a whole other chapter that you didn't even know about as well. So while you're discovering your father has had many great loves and great tragedies, exhibited extraordinary resilience and perseverance, every 
time you turned around, there was, you know, a story, another book in itself. I know. And it's interesting, in all the books or most of the books I've ever read, you develop a story around one incident and then you build things in around it. And I know as a storyteller from television, I don't know how I'd tell this story if I had to sit down and do it. I mean, I see a feature film because there's so many elements to it, but I could never do it as a long-form story. Like you say, it's taken a long time and you thought it was going to be a family history and then every new discovery made the journey and, you know, the deep dive kind of more mysterious. At what point did you decide there's a book in this and it needs to be a bigger story? I think I really wrestled with the book because I, like I said earlier, I just didn't want to put any of me in there. And I had a number of people say to me, you've got to start putting yourself in there because otherwise a reader won't go with you to tell your father's story. It took me many years of wrestling and it was actually only through COVID where, and I had so many drafts of the manuscript and I picked the whole thing apart and I started putting some of my story into it so that readers would understand that I understood story. And this was a really important story, not just to me, it's actually an Australian story. It's a story of somebody who's made really good and who saw opportunity. And it talks to the 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s and 70s in, and 80s in Australia. It's a ripping read because every chapter is just like a revelation. How could so much have been crammed into your father's life and yet you didn't know virtually any of it? And yet when you do talk about yourself, it's actually quite matter of fact to the point and you move through it quite quickly. Yes, I, I, well, because I still don't want to, you know, reveal vulnerability. and There's a responsibility, isn't there, when you're sharing. It's not just your story. I think that's, that's right. the essence of it. I mean, I know for me in Who Do You Think You Are, which will, you know, air on SBS, I felt responsible for all my siblings as well. And then I thought, well, hang on, they may not have experienced what I did. And yet until this occurred, I felt I'm one of four siblings that, we were hand in glove. We all shared the same experiences, so we all must have the same view on it. And yet I don't know if we do. No, because you've all got different relationships with parents and you won't share the same view. But I think where you're particularly fortunate and where I am far less fortunate is you're finding out something while your mother is still alive and you're going to be able to sit down with her and talk to her about it. And one of the greatest things that I've wrestled with is that my father has been gone 25 years and I can't talk to him about anything that I've found. And that's really difficult to process. So one of the things that it's interesting when I talk about the book to friends and mates and and I say to them, you know, if your parents are still alive, you can do that and have a conversation with them and find out about their lives before you arrived on the scene. Because usually when you arrive on the scene, it's about going to school, it's about the tennis lessons, it's whatever. You never have the conversation about who and what your parents are and what their life was before you came on the scene. And if you remember, my father was almost 50 when I was born. He wasn't a young dad. So he had very set ways of doing things. He'd seen the world. I just respected and admired him, but I certainly wasn't going to ask him about his past in that true detail. Given how he suffered personally, as well as with two ex-wives through mental health issues, he stayed connected with that, didn't he? And it's been a personal passion for you. Do we talk enough about it, do you think? No, I don't think so. I've sat on the board of Headspace, which is, you know, the Youth Mental Health Initiative for 12 to 25, and I don't think we do. And I, I think the other issue that 
tends to not get as much prominence as suicide. Because I know in the area that I live in, in the northern beaches of Sydney, the incidence of suicide is just terrible. You know, and I'm, I'm not sure that we give it the sort of prominence and help that young people need and families. I mean, parents must be at their wits end about how to deal with that. It's a huge issue. It is. It is. The pandemic, of course, has exacerbated it for so many people. But look, you've had a remarkable career, but you had a pretty significant setback. You were in your 30s and you had a motorbike accident because this was a personal issue. That I, Had you spoken much about it? No. I <laughs> talked to maybe three or four people. So it's not something that I've really – and I really wrestled with that. And I, I only wrote about it because – In the end, my father succumbed to Alzheimer's and Alzheimer's is often either triggered or exacerbated by great shock or depression or something can, you know, that happens. And we had a a big farm out in the country, uh, past Bogabri, and I had a terrible motorbike accident and we were so far away from the hospital that it took me about six hours to get there. And I uh, was riding pillion passenger on the uh, back of a bike. And I mean, I'm very active and have ridden motorbikes and I shouldn't say, but I still ride a quad bike today at our farm. But a quad, I just don't view that as dangerous as probably a motorbike. But I jumped on the back and um, unfortunately, it only had one foot peg on the left-hand side, but not on the right-hand side. And as I said, I was pillion. And we were went to travel over a cattle grid and For a moment, I'd lost my balance and my foot went into the back wheel. And so that was, of course, quite catastrophic because there's, you know, when you're on a cattle grid, there's only one way you can keep going. And so by the time I got to the other end, you know, of course, my leg was absolutely ruined because it took us six hours to get to the hospital. Unfortunately, they couldn't save part of my leg. And you have a prosthetic. That's right. And there's an emotional and psychological and physical journey that you have to go on. Yes, that's right. I mean, you know, before I'd play A-grade squash, I dived all over the world. Well, I still, I play, went on to keep playing squash. I'd keep diving. I dive all over the world now. I mean, we ski. So it doesn't mean that your life has to end, but you've just got to, I mean, I've got to face reality. There's nothing I can do about that. A bit like there was nothing that dad, my father could do about, you know, a lot of the circumstances that he found in his life. So what you have to do is pick yourself up and be resilient. And I guess what I didn't, the reason, one of the big things I grappled with is I don't want to be a poster girl for disability. It's just because I don't like talking about it terribly much. And some people feel very comfortable about it. And that's great because it raises the profile. I've used my ability as a producer to tell stories about those issues, including, you know, disability, including mental health or whatever, because I can do that. But I just don't want to be trotted out as the person, you know, that you feature talking about this issue. I wonder if you agree with me that the hesitancy for some people to talk about their mental health struggles is the tag that gets permanently attached. Totally. I absolutely agree. Which is why you were reluctant to talk about a physical disability because you didn't want to be tagged with it. Well, but I also think I'm all about getting on with life. I didn't want that to be perceived particularly in an industry where image is everything. As you well know, in television, broadcasting, young woman, image is everything. So what you do is you just, you want to actually be good at what you do and that other side of you is not going to define you at all. So I didn't talk about it. It's an extraordinary tale, not just about your dad, but I just love, I guess because, you know, we're of a similar age, so 
I don't have, you know, your story, but it tells my Australia. It very much explains to me the Australia I grew up with or my parents talked about, you know, and I can marry all those conversations with all those chapters and decades. Is that right? Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm really pleased to hear that because I think it, I wanted to give people a sense of a different Australia and a current Australia, a migrant Australia, a refugee, you know, coming in, an Australia that was very different and particularly for us because we're so lucky these days. But that's not always the case for people that come into Australia. And I think about people coming out of the Ukraine now, how tough it is for them to come to Australia. It's really tough. But there's more infrastructure now and we know how to look after migrants and refugees and displaced people. We didn't then. What was the hardest thing to leave out? <laughs> I'm not going to tell you because there could be more secrets beyond the screen. I mean, I don't, I don't know. I mean, there's, there's a lot of personal stuff I haven't put in there because, of course, I'm not going to. It's not that sort of book. It's a remarkable story of not just survival but strength and courage and tenacity and perseverance and resilience. And, and you know, he created a company that was listed on the Australian Stock Exchange. He managed, he brought Sony out to Australia and he was the chair here. He rose from the ashes repeatedly. Totally. And he did. And that's what we talk about looking forward all the time. That's what he'd do. Well, Anita Jacoby, congratulations. As I said, it is an extraordinary book and I can't imagine the process, the journey you've been on for so long, but it's a wonderful story. So look, best of luck. And I would encourage everyone to make sure they buy a copy of Secrets Beyond the Screen. Uh, congratulations. It's awesome. Sandra, thank you so much for such a great interview and a great, well, more than an interview, it was a great chat. Thank you. You have been listening to Short Black, a Network 10 podcast. To make sure you don't miss any episodes, subscribe in your favourite podcast app. Thanks for listening.